This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Liz Danzico about how she thought she was a writer before discovering she was a digital designer, about life in New York City and why it suits her, and about why it's so important to keep learning and relearning. As wise as one gets over the years, and you will get wiser, thank goodness. Oh, yeah. You will forget things. And it's okay to remind yourself and to go back. So it's okay to backtrack. Here's Debbie Millman. Everyone knows what NPR sounds like. But what does NPR look like? In an era when a lot of people under 30 don't even own radios, this isn't an academic question. If NPR hopes to stay relevant, it has to have a strong presence on tablets and phones. It's got to have a look and a feel. Figuring this out is Liz Danzico. NPR hired her earlier this year as its first ever creative director. Liz Danzico is also the chair and co-founder of the graduate program in interaction design here at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. In other words, Liz Danzico is a polymath, and she's here to talk about her many professional endeavors, past, present, and future. Liz, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. So I understand you grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, with a family that put post-it notes everywhere, put charts on the refrigerator, organized what you were supposed to do every day, and gave you gold stars when you exceeded at things. How has that shaped you? Oh, my God. Yes, it's true. And I will say my father taught um, something like how to be organized at our local branch of Penn State University, (laughs) which at the time I thought, every student had to take, but now I realize this was kind of an anomaly. How has that shaped me? Um, Well, there are likely post-it notes in my bag at this very moment. And if you go down to the graduate department, you'll see post-it notes everywhere. Um, I think the approach to organization was one of a communication rather than one of structure. I think oftentimes people think of those devices and those kinds of artifacts as ones that kind of box you in or constrain you. But the way that they were used in my family was one of playfulness. You know, there'll be a happy cloud or a sunshine to communicate the weather on the refrigerator every morning or something else in your bedroom that would say how things were going in the family when people couldn't be around. It said to me that organization could be a positive influence in your life rather than one of constraint. And that's what I've tried to bring to my work. And it's just helped me realize that the multiple things that I'm interested in can be organized and done in a way that's positive and happy rather than something that feels over overwhelming or a burden. I happen to be an organizational obsessor, <laughs> for lack of a better term. I'm with you. <laughs> I just feel happier and safer when things are organized and neat. But I, I worry that my approach to this is probably more of control than playfulness. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I had guests this weekend and I organized the inside of a cabinet <laughs> before they got there. Of course you did. Yeah. So Why uh, wouldn't you? So, you know, I understand it's not all it's not all playfulness necessarily. It's one that helps you feel, you know, that things are in order and therefore, you know, you can think more clearly. So when you were eight years old, you created, designed, wrote, and sold your very own newspaper. And you called it the 
Greenwich Gazette, is that correct? The Greenridge Gazette. Greenridge Gazette. You even made two comics, from what I understand, one made by you and one you hired a friend across the street to do. What made you decide to start a newspaper at eight years old? Oh, my goodness. Yes, the Greenridge Gazette. Greenridge is the neighborhood in Scranton where we lived and my parents still live. I had an interest. I was taking calligraphy lessons with my dad. At eight years old. You know, this is completely inspired by him. He was doing it, and so he brought me along. I was interested in um, drawing, as many kids are, and I was very interested in writing. And frankly, I was very interested in the Xerox machine. Like, the, the photocopy machine was like magic. This was the technology that was going to, you know, propagate the uh, the newspaper. So I got to use the photocopy machine if I made this newspaper. Um, so it was a combination of technology and design and writing and, and calligraphy that I did the masthead with. And so I don't know. I think it was um, bringing all these things together that my mother and father kind of suggested a newspaper format. And so they let me by myself to go around the block and collect stories from the neighbors. And I would go door to door and knock and ask people like, you know, stand in the doorways or go into the so real rooms. market research. You know, what has your parakeet done this week? You know, how has um, how have your tomatoes been? You know, it was just real like journalism and then write about them and illustrate them. And there's no seed of anything in these drawings. I mean, I, I go back and look at them every once in a while and I can't say that there's anything there other than just a, a deluge of interest. I mean, it's just like again and again mashing everything that I'm interested together in this one thing. And I really loved the photocopying. Like, I really, I was very interested in the technology part of it. So access, the whole access of it. Yeah, like I could do this thing once and then propagate it. You know, the same people who granted me an hour of an interview about a parakeet, then I sold the paper to (laughs) Now there's a business proposition. (laughs) And they actually paid for it. So that means they saw value. Yeah. So you went to Pennsylvania State University and you got a Bachelor of Arts degree in English literature. What were you hoping to be at that time? Well, I was hoping to let, you know, to have somebody let me do what I kind of love to do, which was the written word. It wasn't literature per se, but it was a love of words. I knew I loved getting involved with language. And I think if I had known what linguistics was at the time, and I don't think I did per se, I would have gone deep in linguistics. But it was there was something about the way that words were constructed. And it was late in my college career, my undergrad career, that I discovered that it was not just the way that words came together, but the way that words were then presented and the way that words got displayed to affect the way that people saw them or heard them or, you know, behavior and design can also affect language. So it wasn't until later on that I realized all of those things. But early on, I thought it was just words. And so English literature seemed like the right path, right? Because that's where the words were when you're when you're younger. And I agree, it's definitely the degree in reading. And I had a lot of catching up to do because I hated reading as a child. I hated it. But with somebody that has such a love of words. I know. I know. Isn't that interesting? I, I, I despised it. Why? I don't know. It seemed so boring. I didn't, wasn't reading the right books. I, I don't know. But I, I definitely did a lot of pretend reading, you know, like here's the book. And I would sort of move it to the other side of the table to pretend like – I had read it. It's or, like pretend eating broccoli. Exactly. Hide it under the placemat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a, a kind of awakening in college in particular. I remember um, one professor who he himself was so passionate about 
the texts and Ralph Waldo Emerson in particular. I remember, you know, underlining and underlining and writing in the margins and writing in the margins and just that being the first experience I had with really falling in love with text, not just the words and the way they were constructed. So right after college, though, you decided to go to Japan and you taught English as a second language, which essentially means you're teaching the language to people that don't speak it and you don't speak their language either. How do you even go about doing something like that? How is it even possible to teach when you don't know somebody else's language? A lot, a lot of body language, a lot of gesturing. And uh, yeah, I didn't know Japanese at the time. In fact, um, I did decide to go to Japan because I was very confused about this thing that was design. I thought I loved words, but words are designed on the page and you can typeset them and add things. And so I was confused about that and I wanted more time to extend an understanding of how those things could come together and what I wanted to do. But I had never even been on a plane before, before I got on the plane to move to Japan. There was lots of scary aspects of that. Or it's scary. That's not true. I was so excited. I can't tell you <laughs> So excited to get out of, you know, the East Coast in Pennsylvania where I had been, I had gone to school. So there were a lot of new things. I mean, not just teaching English to people who didn't understand it, but being in a culture that in many ways is the antithesis. You know, a lot of things that to us seem that would be intuitive for you to come and shake someone's hand or do this kind of thing would be insulting to someone else. So it was so instructive to me. So much trial and error and so much patience on the side of the people who are receiving the instruction, who themselves are the teacher. And through them kind of teaching me about the Japanese culture, I then taught them English. How long were you there for? I was originally going to be there for a year, and I extended it for another year. So I stayed for two. So you came home and went and got a master's degree from Carnegie Mellon University. But I read that At the time you came back, you actually wanted to go to South Africa for a project, but worried that you'd be too old when you came back from doing the project. At this time, you were 24. And I read an interview wherein you stated that you now regret that decision. And and I'm wondering why. I, I don't really have many regrets. And I don't know if that is one of my life's biggest regrets, but it certainly was a learning moment for me. When you, when you are 24, it seems like the oldest age you can I – mean, it is the oldest age you, you are at that time. You've never been any older. I don't know. I, I felt like to a certain degree my organizational upbringing, I'm not sure, kind of kicked in and I felt like it was time to, to start a real career. There was some aspect of that that was hanging over my head. Um, it seemed like mid-20s was the age you were supposed to do that. There was a lot of supposed to kind of hanging over me. And this opportunity in South Africa was a writing project where I would travel from village to village and write about what was happening and publish a newsletter or contribute to a newsletter that was being published. And I think it was six months to a year. It wasn't very long. But it would further delay the sort of traditional career that I thought I was supposed to have. So, um, so I didn't do it. But for no good reason other than I was supposed to do something else or I had this image in the back of my mind. This this comes up a lot for me in general, particularly with professional 
obligations or professional decisions whereby there's an image of what a career looks like, whether it be a title I'm supposed to have or a dinner I'm supposed to go, you know, whatever it is. You, the big I, supposed to. Yeah, I think we, we, we have an image that's formed very early of what we're supposed to do. And it's very hard to shake that, you know, and it's very hard to to get in touch with what you actually believe and feel you're, you want to do. And I think that was the first moment that I faced that, really, professionally. So that's why I think it holds true to me today as something I regret, because it was the first moment I had that decision point, and I didn't follow my own feelings, instead, someone else's. I think that so many people have that moment in their life when they have to make a decision about what the right thing is supposed to be or what your heart tells you you should try. And I had a very similar circumstance. I was already in my 30s. I was in my early 30s, and I had been working since I was in high school, nearly full-time when I wasn't in school, and then ever since I'd graduated college. And I had an instance where I had a bit of a break, sort of self-imposed, and I had given myself a certain amount of time, but I never once in that time was able to enjoy it because I thought that the more time I was off, the more unemployable I would become. Mm -hmm. I was 32. Mm -hmm. And so for listeners out there that might be wondering, should I do this heart project or should I do what I'm supposed to do? I will urge you to take the heart project. (laughs) Yeah. You know, they, they say, you know, put the oxygen mask on yourself before you, you know, put it on other people. You can't take care of, I mean, it's such a, a crisis mode way of thinking about it, but you can't take care of other people. You can't nourish other people around you, whether you're trying to manage a team of two or, you know, a team of 50 or even write for an audience alone, you know, in your cabin in the woods, if you're not taking care of your heart. You, you just, you have nothing left to give. You will be depleted in the If you're living for somebody else, you're only ever going to please somebody else. Yeah. It becomes very empty. It's sustainable for a little while. It it really is. What made you decide you needed a master's degree at that time in your life? What did you study? Well, I don't think as much as I fully um, believe in master's programs and PhD programs, it is for everyone. But it definitely was for me. I didn't know much about design. And so... I wanted to find a program that would teach me something about how to combine writing and design, not really even knowing what that meant and not really not really caring what it meant, you know, not, just like, okay, let's keep this open and figure out how to bring these two worlds together if they are even separate. And there were about five programs in the country I could find at the time that brought together words and images in different ways. And the one I found was a Carnegie Mellon and still exists. I was just there last week going back and speaking to them. It's a program that's really wonderful. It's called Professional Writing, and it brings together aspects of professional writing, which could be things like style and advanced grammar, rhetoric, but also brings together human-computer interaction, business, and communication design. So, you know, at the time, it had this studio where the writers were on one side and the designers were on the other side. I had registered at another college. I'd registered another place. I walked onto Carnegie Mellon's campus to get a tour and fell in love with it. Just absolutely fell in love with it. Like you do a city that you know you need to move to, you know. And uh it was it was one of the best decisions I've made. And uh I go back almost every single year to visit. 
because it was that that much of a turning point for me. Karen McGrain hired you at Razorfish directly after graduating Carnegie Mellon in 1999. And you've said that she took a chance by hiring you and is the reason you're even New York and you're even in New York in the first place. Why do you say she took a chance by hiring you? Well, yeah, she uh, thank you, Karen. She was actually so inspirational to me in many ways because I was a Carnegie Mellon. I was technically it had a, a writing degree, a master's in writing. And I remember um going on a number of writing, a couple of writing interviews, specifically sitting in a woman's office in, at Siegel and Gale at the time, and her looking at my resume and her looking at my portfolio and saying, no, um, you're not a writer. You should probably leave this office. I think you should go talk to this woman at Razorfish, which is a firm I hadn't heard of at the time. I think there were probably about 25 people at that time, very small and young and, and interesting. I think you should interview for a position over there. And, uh, by all definition, I was a writer. I'd never been, just you know, no design experience. But Karen looked over the work I had been doing in grad school and saw something in me, in my thinking, in the way that I, she asked me a number of questions about how I thought about websites at the time and, and really saw something in the work that I had been doing and hired this person with a writing master's who had been taking design, as many design classes as she could in grad school. Razorfish was doing some of the most progressive breakthrough work I had ever seen in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. I remember seeing a piece on their website that they put up on the history of typography. I remember that. It blew my mind. It changed my life. This was the first time I'd ever seen anything on a screen go across horizontally. Everything was scrolled vertically at that time. And it just went on forever. It just didn't stop. And it was really like the history of typography in this infinite manner. I remember it to this day sitting there in front of the screen for hours, unable to break away because it was that beautiful and that breathtaking. Yeah, so many things they did early, which I'm sure were happening all over the world, too. Just this was my experience. I remember there was a an interesting man that used to sit. We used to have these row, long, long um rows of tables, steel tables, as a matter of fact. There was this interesting guy who used to sit at the end. No one really knew who he was. There were a couple of them, and he was one of them. And, well, he worked for Adobe or Macromedia or, like, who was this person? As it turns out, it was Hillman Curtis, and Hillman Curtis was sharing our office space. Like, co-working is such a, you know, everybody's doing co-working spaces now, and it's, you know, such a common way of thinking about things. But at the time, it was like... What is cohort? What does that mean that this human is in our space? This is our office. So just, you know, so many things that Razorfish, I think, did early to kind of teach us different ways of thinking about working from bringing dogs to the office, you know, in 1999 to having people share office space, which today are so standard, but then just seemed so crazy. <laughs> Funny to think. In 2001, after Razorfish, you became the editor of Boxes and Arrows, the information architecture magazine. You did this among many other projects until 2007. What did you like most about being an editor at this time? Something about seeing things in people that they don't see themselves. I see it in text, you know, when you read something that someone's trying to say in a eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. I hear it in conversations when someone's trying to tell you about a book project that they're working on, or even they're 
excited about something and you can hear that it's a book that they should be writing. I don't know. It, I don't sculpt or anything, you know, I, but I, I feel like it's almost like that process where you're revealing something about an idea that's just in such raw form and you get to reveal that for someone. You get to say, look at this thing that you've made and you didn't even know it was under there. And you get to present that back to them, this art form that they've made. And uh, if it's done well, you know, there's this kind of uh, mutual kind of uh, note. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like when, when two notes are played in tune, you know, there's this like humming that happens that you could feel. And I feel like when you, when that happens and you present an idea back to someone that they have been trying to say and you've uncovered it for them, it feels like that. It's definitely magic. But that's what I loved about editing. And so I, I have done it for many years and I still today things have gotten a bit more hectic. But I am the family editor, so every important document that goes out of the Danzico household, I try to – well, my brother's a journalist, so not every important document. But but you're the one that puts the post-its on it, right? That's right. That's <laughs> right. I try, to, I try to keep it up because I do love it. So while you were working at Boxes and Arrows, you had an interview with one of your favorite authors, a man named Paco Underhill. And I understand in order to do the interview that you were doing on the telephone in private, you ended up conducting it in a broom closet, sitting in a soapy water bucket. Within a few weeks, you resigned from your full-time job and went full-time freelance. Was that scary? What was it like for you? Yeah, there was a moment where I remember at the time I did have a one full-time job and then two full-time side project jobs. So I was the editor of Boxes and Arrows where I had landed this important thing and, and then I was helping someone else with a publishing project. It was a, a moment where you know, there's the supposed to voice and I went against that supposed to voice because I couldn't do my full-time job because all the side projects were getting in the way, you know, standing in that broom closet with the <laughs> mop, you know. It's such a beautiful visual. <laughs> it's like it was pitch black dark, too, for an hour in doing this interview <laughs> with the, the, the mop. And um, it was gratifying. It was a major switch. And then I felt like my whole professional career had turned over or I had conceptually flipped the model thinking that. I had always tried to take all the like the octopus of all the projects I had worked on and tried to well, – I'm not going to continue that metaphor – tried to contain <laughs> them all and pretend like I only had one thing going on because I felt like that was the organized kind of professional path. But all of a sudden, I realized that I could make all of these things my full-time job. So I could open a studio whereby my job was to be – doing multiple things all the time. And that was a model. That was a way forward. I didn't have to pretend that I only had one thing. And I could talk about that and I could create a way to explain that and bobulate, right, for intentional organization out of chaos could actually become a thing that I did. And that was so exciting. It felt like for the first time I'd figured something out about how to marry all these disparate pieces of my life into one thing that made sense for me. So I don't know. It was scary. I mean, there's always the money, you know, like, how am I going to make money? I mean, all of those things people who have started their own thing always think about. But it was so gratifying. You know, it felt so much like me. And the worry about that was overpowered. And certainly there were tough times in doing that. But I felt so um, honest with myself that I just felt so positive about the work I was doing. 
So you referenced Bobulate, which is your website, bobulate.com, which is a riff on the word discombobulate. Can you give us some background on how you came to the word bobulate? Because it's a word you actually made up. Right. Um, at Razorfish, one of the first people I met was a, a man named Peter Ginsburg. And over the course of our time there, we used to pass, a, I guess it was an email, it was like a note back and forth about words that sounded funny with their prefixes and suffixes taken off. And I really just got attached to Bobulate. And I started thinking about where I could use it. I registered Bobulate.com, I think in 2000. It wasn't until 2001. But it became, you know, my social media handle for everything. You know, it stands for intentional organization. There are many iterations of that, you know, um, combobulated and so on. So we can talk about that and diagram it um, at I'm some sure. time. Absolutely. Yeah. I let's make yeah. a plan. Yeah, let's do it. Um, <laughs> I spent quite a lot of time on Bobulate.com in the weeks leading up to our interview. And I read that when you first went freelance, you would start the day with some exercise. Then you'd shower, dress, and ride the train in a loop from your apartment and back again to begin work at home. Um, why? <laughs> So before I went freelance, I did some research on how to work at home. <laughs> and um, because, you know, yeah, why not? Absolutely. How do you do that? You know, and um, and so the founder of Linux did the same thing. And he had a split level house. And instead of walking from one level to the next, he did a similar thing where he can't remember which order, but he showered and ate breakfast and went for a, a walk around the neighborhood and came back and went to his other level of his house. And that's how he started his day. And for me, I mean, I was like, this is genius. Because for me, there's something really um, important about touching outside in the morning, which I would have a hard time letting go of if I left the city. Even being on the subway next to people in the morning who are soapy and clean or wet from the rain or holding newspapers, not so much anymore. But there's something really nice about that. You can sort of feel the city. Like, how are people feeling? Are they grumpy? Is it morning? You know, and then in the afternoon, in the evening, they don't smell so good. You know, it's like they're grumpy, but you can feel the city. And so without that, I felt I would be really disconnected. And so I needed that. Now, um, that said, I also love efficiency. And so after a little bit of that, and I can't remember how long it lasted. It, it seemed and it was very, just in the morning, not at night to come back. Yeah, it seemed. Uh, now that's ridiculous. I mean, come <laughs> on. Um, but it just seemed a little inefficient. So I did, I did stop after a while. Um, and so do you have any other rituals? Did you have any other rituals once you gave that up in order to sort of get yourself into the day? Yeah. I mean, I, I have one superstition um, sort of ritual in the morning, which is, the, um, I do a walk slash run with my dog in the morning. I happen to live near a place in Brooklyn where you can see the lower part of Manhattan and Staten Island and Ellis Island and so on. And I feel like if the sun hits the city at a certain angle and I see the Staten Island Ferry, it's going to be a good day. And I, I almost always see it. And then I since realized the Staten Island Ferry runs on a schedule, and I always run at the same time. So that's why I see it all the time. <laughs> so but you're making it happen for yourself. I am. It's but, perspective. But that's the – yeah, that's the uh, the routine that I have. And that's a, a nice way of, like, feeling the city. Even today, now that I work remotely with a D.C. team, a lot of times I will work from home. 
And so I need that feeling of the city, and that's the way I get it. In 2007, Stephen Heller invited you to join him in starting a digital design master's program at SVA, an interaction design master's program at SVA. And I I read that you agreed to help him explore the idea, but at the time you were thinking of moving to Europe. Really? That's right. (laughs) So you didn't move to Europe. Instead, you, 2009, I believe, was the first year you graduated your first group of master's students in interaction design. What made you stay? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it seemed... It's hard to say no to Steve. Yeah, I mean, there's Steve Heller. There's that, which is 95% of the reason. Um, We're both here. (laughs) I know. he's, But he he sees something in people. So he, he sort of knows something about you that you don't know about yourself. He knew about running a master's program, creating it and, and running it, that it's like the magic I described about editing because you get to do that um, uncovering an idea with faculty and with students and with projects and workshops and spaces. And, and then you get to encourage other people to do it as well. So it's this network effect, you know, and you watch it grow over time with alumni. So I never thought I'd. Well, I never thought I'd stay because I, I didn't I, – we agreed to and do it just for a couple of the years. Idea. Yeah. And, um, and so it's been so rewarding. I mean it's probably one of the more rewarding things I've done in my life because it just grows exponentially over years. And alumni are now hiring alumni and current students and, you know, they're marrying one another. And, you know, it's just – it's not a family, but a, a growing community in its own right. And that's so satisfying to see for me and for other people as well. So it's taking on a life of its own. You've written about how when you first started the program, there were people that asked you if you were afraid to be so young and be chair of a program and question whether or not you were afraid of the responsibility or afraid to be shifting careers. And they kept asking you if you were afraid, 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 as if this was the most terrible thing in the world. And you said that you were afraid, actually. And I was wondering if you can elaborate on the notion of being afraid but doing something anyway. Yeah, I was very surprised at how many people wanted to talk about how young I was. I felt like there was a subtext there of unqualified or... You're not supposed to be doing this. (laughs) Aren't you supposed to be doing something else? Weren't you supposed to move to Europe? And these were strangers. These weren't even friends or colleagues. I mean, these were people that I didn't know but were in the same field. Friends of mine would say, you know, this is a compliment. Someday you'll like people saying that you're too young and so on. But I did um, feel really troubled about it. But I've never made a decision that felt easy and then felt good about it afterwards. And so because this was one of the harder decisions for me, you know, all the pieces weren't lining up and I'd never done anything quite like it, so I didn't feel qualified. It wasn't a straight line. You know, the lines, if there are any, didn't quite line up. I knew that it would be a good decision. So I had confidence in that. I could be in touch more with how I felt about decision-making rather than relying on titles or pedigree or CVs or other traditional methods of how you should get somewhere and actually just relying more on my confidence about being able to do it because of how I felt about the work in front of me. You know, thinking back to the Africa regret or Mm. the project that I didn't do back, you know, in my early 20s, 
it was just a radical shift, you know, a completely different way of making decisions. You know, since then, I've been much more confident about making decisions based on how I think and feel I can do rather than evidence, because evidence is thin, honestly. You write about this in really beautiful detail on your site, and you quoted Clay Shirky's view on the self-promotion of women. I'm going to quote him and read this passage. I'm not concerned that women don't engage in enough building of self-confidence or self-esteem. I'm worried about something much simpler. Not enough women have what it takes to behave like arrogant, self-aggrandizing jerks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, exactly. I'm wondering how that played into your decision-making. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I that passage or that post of his was really important to me. It talks about, in shorthand, faking it a bit when you know you can do something and how to confidently fake something when you know you can get there by the time the event or activity arrives. It's kind of what being an entrepreneur is, really, or starting anything is. You know, you have a point in front of you and you're kind of making up what it takes from here to there. But meanwhile, you have to tell the story that's in front of you. I mean, put another way, that's an arrogance, right? It's like, believe me, by the time we're going to, you know, we're going to get here, we're going to be X and Y and Z. And you should be talking about this in the present. You shouldn't be talking about we will or we should or, you know, the arrogance is talking about this future state as if it's the present. And that takes a conceptual shift as well. I fully believe and have tried this out, I kind of love it. This kind of like living in in fiction or telling the story and helping people understand how to get there with you. I think that a lot of people wait to feel a certain way about themselves before they're willing to take a chance. And I think sometimes you have to take a chance in order to feel that way about yourself that you want to feel. Yeah. Like, I'm going to make, you know, buy my newspaper. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Um, You started Bobulate on September 30th, 2009, and you started it with a quote from Anne Lamont's book, Bird by Bird, uh, Some Instructions on Writing and Life. And you quoted her, and this is that passage. You need your broccoli in order to write well. Otherwise, you're going to sit down in the morning and have only your rational mind to guide you. What made you decide to start your blog with that particular quote? Oh, that's hilarious. I uh, Bird by Bird is um, one of my all-time favorites books. I don't even, favorite is not the word. I kind of have slept with that book for years on end and read it so many times. James Victoria recommended that book to me. That particular passage and probably about 10 passage or 10 blog posts that I wrote were done in secret before I wrote it. And I tested out Bobulate before I made it public to anyone. And that that broccoli passage is just so silly. I mean, there's there's the I think the paragraphs around it have to do with like grabbing vegetables off the table and like throwing them in your pocket. Like, why not just put things out there? The shitty first drafts, you know, just who cares? You know, I mean, we're all human. So do whatever you feel like and it's going to be okay. And you can edit it later anyway. You can take the broccoli out and put it back on the table. So I don't know. There's something that's slightly silly and also a reminder that we're all just human and they're only vegetables or words. I don't know. There's something that really was really powerful about that. There's an interview online about you titled Badass Lady wherein you declare, when I was a graduate student, we had at least two public radio stations that played NPR programming. Mornings, I would put one station on in the kitchen, 
and a different one in the bedroom, both loud enough so I could hear them simultaneously from the kitchen table. There I would also read the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, our local paper, and compare how news was unfolding across all three sources. Mm -hmm. Did you ever imagine back then that one day you'd be the first ever creative director at NPR? Oh, my God. Isn't that amazing to think about that? Never would. In fact, over Thanksgiving holiday this year, my brother works for the BBC, and my father, my father's Thanksgiving topic was, how did this happen? What did we do? <laughs> you know, and and, uh, and then he went on to suggest, oh, I guess there was the time that we asked you to volunteer for the public radio station. And then I guess my favorite character is Edward Murrow, my parents and the household. It wasn't just the parents, but the whole family kind of advocated for public media in general. Um, it makes sense. I mean, it's just an, an exciting prospect. But the design aspect of it? I mean, I would never would have, you know, as I kind of struggled through figuring out which grad school would present this idea of text and pictures together and how that would all come together. I would have never thought of it. No. What do you do as creative director? What does the first ever creative director at NPR do? There is a digital media group at NPR and the digital media group has a design group within it. I oversee a set of super talented interaction designers and visual product designers. And we create user experiences for the places where audiences are and will be. So those are sort of six places, websites, tablets, smartphones, in cars, connected cars, increasingly connected homes like Chromecast and Roku, and also emerging technologies. So smart watches and things that we don't even know. So experimental stuff that we don't know. So wherever public media audiences are, that's where we create things for. So I oversee that group. Um, that's one sort of part of my brain and one half of my responsibility. The other part is to think about how the visual aspects of NPR are connected. There is design happening all over NPR. And that's not just in D.C., but all over, you know, the New York Bureau, digital services in Boston, all over the member stations across the country. It's my responsibility just to be uh, kind of connecting the dots in those conversations and to weigh in where I can. On one hand, it could be an enormous task to try to think about how to oversee that. But if you think about it as a kind of connecting the dots, you know, in conversations kind of way, it could be really interesting. So that's the approach that I've taken is to help people be aware of other conversations that are happening, whether it's in the building or across states and so on. Um, There was a design director who specifically oversaw that group that I talked about. When he left, they saw it as an opportunity to expand the role and to think about how could design be more, not unified, but more connected across the organization. And so thus the first ever creative director role. You started this job at the beginning of 2014, but you are also continuing in your role as chair of the interaction department here at SVA. How often do you need to be on site at NPR in Washington, D.C.? It depends. It's up to me. There's no need necessarily. I'm finding that it's useful to be there at least once every two weeks. I have been going once a week. 
but um, once every two weeks is, is the minimum. I read that you travel on Amtrak so much, you know which seat you like in the quiet car and how, and that you're quite opinionated about which meal you want on the train. How hard is it traveling so much or is it not that bad? Um, it depends on the week, I think. It's probably the same as one feels about any commute. I was really shocked when a woman, or I would say the woman, who does serve breakfast on the train last week said, oh, that's unusual that you're getting that. When I ordered the breakfast, <laughs> I was like, well, it's good to see you too. And um, I think it's hard when things don't go well, right? When it rains and the train stops, when the Wi-Fi doesn't work, when things don't go well, it's hard. But when things go well... And the coffee's great and the wife is, you know, then it's it's fine. When things aren't going well, I do have to say I step back and I look at my situation and I think I get the opportunity to work for what I consider one of the world's most beloved brands in my mind. It's one that I've loved for my entire life with people who I respect so much. If they're letting me in the building, I don't care what it takes to get there. You know, I'm going to I'm going to do it. You wrote another really um, beautiful piece on Bobulate about writing a letter to your younger self. And I'd like to share some of that now with our listeners. This is what you write. If I met me, but many years before, we'd talk about love and time. Love will not be polite. It does not wait for opportune moments to approach you. It knows not your life plans or schedule or current or future intentions. It will not wait for you to be ready. There is, in this way, no time for it. If you wait for it, then it will not come. As love for a person, a profession, a practice, a city comes to you. It crosses your path, and it is only yours to accept. It is up to you to open your hands and heart. Liz, what else would you tell your younger self? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. When I started the program... At SBA, there was a woman who was a kind of mentor who told me I needed to open my hands and my heart in order to do that. And I had no idea what she was talking about. I was like, what does that mean? It even sounds so silly. And so it's funny. Sounds like a Madonna song. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, I, should, I should put that passage to music. So, to Madonna. Um, so, so it's interesting that you picked that out because, because I really feel strongly about it. I, since I wrote that, I've gone back to it a number of times and read it like, just to remind myself how important that is. I guess the one thing that comes to mind that I have done is since I wrote that, and I feel very strongly about all the things I wrote about music and family, is that as wise as one gets over the years, and you will get wiser, thank goodness. Oh, yeah. Um, you will forget things. And it's okay to remind yourself and to go back. So it's okay to backtrack. Life will give you setbacks. And it's okay to have to backtrack and remind yourself and rely on people and ask for help. It's okay. I'm still learning that myself, that it's actually okay to go back and to ask for help and to remind yourself of things you've already learned. That's, that's life. Liz, the last thing I want to talk with you about today is your relationship with New York City. Is it true that your favorite book is New York, the 1949 book by E.B. White? Yes, it is. And is it true that you've memorized every word of it? Oh, you know, it has been true. It has been true. Can you recite any part of it? Any part? One one or two lines from anywhere in the book. There are three New Yorks. The New York of the commuter, 
the New York of the visitor and the New York of the resident. I've thought about that passage over and over again. Richard Shell Warman talks about how there are only five ways to organize information, location, alphabet, time, category, and hierarchy. And when I read E.B. White's version of this, like there are only three types of New Yorkers. I'm like, no, there are more, right? And so every time I think of a new type of New Yorker, I continue to build on his definition of the three New Yorkers. So do you have more that you can add? Any other types of New Yorkers that should be on that list? Yeah, I think I'm up to six now. What are they? So there's the New York of the person who never intended to be here, but has now found herself here and can't leave. Is that you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I hated New York when I first got here. What? Oh, my God. For a good five years. Oh, goodness. And moving out of here. I'm um, in the middle of my torrid love affair with the city. Yeah. Never to ever be extinguished. There, there are two more, I think, right? Yeah. There are two. So. Could people read about it on your blog? Yes. Okay. So we'll have to send people to the blog. If you search E.B. White on BobbyLate.com, you'll see them. I'd like to close the show today by actually reading another passage from Bobby Late. This is a passage that you've written about New York. You write, in more than a decade there... I've been locked out, delighted, broken into, loved, infuriated, and everything in between. This is a city I came to with aspiration, and a city I returned to aspiring to be inspired again. But if I could give one piece of advice, it would be to find what's been there all along. What was there when you were seven that you still care about today? What keeps you up at night? What do you find yourself thinking about during the meeting when you're supposed to be thinking about something else? What just feels right? Because that is the drive to do something you care just enough about to make a change. And when you find that, don't let go. Liz, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure. To find out more about Liz Danzico, go to her website, bobulate.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. 